0: Climbing Gold is a production of duct tape and beer. With support from the North Face, never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration.
1: Hi, everyone. Elizabeth Nakano, senior producer, here again. Today, we've got another bonus episode for you. We'll bring you chapter seven next week. So in chapter five, we talked with Beth Rodden about Lynn Hill's influence on the sport. But the following story, and Beth's perspective on the rise of professionalism and pay parity, didn't make it in.
0: I think that her stories are are pretty freaking good, you know? I mean, a little 10-minute bonus episode with Beth talking about things that matter to her, I think is kind of cool.
1: From the late 90s through the early 2000s, Beth was on the cutting edge of the sport, establishing first ascents of 514B, the incredible 514C crackline meltdown, and numerous free climbs on El Cap, including the nose and the first free ascent of lurking fear with her then-husband, Tommy Caldwell.
0: But I think maybe more than the hard climbs that she's done, Beth has been a real inspiration to a whole generation of young women who who just saw her as this incredible force on on trad climbs and big walls.
1: But it's quite possible that none of that would have happened if Lynn Hill hadn't thrown Beth a pizza party after successfully red-pointing to Bolt or Not to Be, America's first 514A, which, interestingly, was established by J.B. Trebeau, the climber who said women would never climb 514.
0: I had gone to a semester of school up in Davis, um, and then I took my quote-unquote semester off to go up and try and do to bolt or not to be. And, like, I totally promised my parents, I was like, you know, if you let me do this climb, I promise I'll get climbing out of my system, I'll go back to school, like, the whole nine yards. And they bought it, so I was up there. And while I was up there, Lynn used to actually... That's where her home base was back then. She had this little house in in between uh, Smith and Ben. So she was there for kind of like the latter half of my trip. She had just come back from some exotic place climbing. So she saw me do bolt. We even climbed on it one day together. She had done it maybe the season before or something like that. So when I did it, she came up to me and she was like, hey, I'd love to like throw you a pizza party. That was like really impressive that you did that climb. And I was like blown away that Lynn Hill wanted to throw me a pizza party. You know, I was just like, I'm just like some nobody and here's Lynn Hill. And so when we were at her house that night, she was like regaling us with all these stories of places she was going, places she had been. And I was just like, man, you lead the most charmed life I have ever imagined. You know, just like getting to go and, on these trips and people pay for it and people take pictures of you and then you get in the magazines. And then I was with, you know, a handful of friends and she looked over at us and she said, Oh hey, you know, we're like looking for another person. What are you doing next month to go to Madagascar? And I totally looked at my friend Jeannie, because you know, Jeannie actually knew how to trad climb and she had been more than hundred and twenty feet off the ground. And I was like, man, Lynn Hill is asking you to go to Madagascar. And then everybody was, like, kind of staring at me. And I realized that, like, Lynn was asking me to go. And I didn't actually – I mean, I knew Madagascar was, like, an island off of Africa. But I didn't, like, really know where it was. But, you know, like, when Lynn Hill asks you to go to Madagascar, you say yes. So I was like, sure, I'll go. I've always wanted to go to Madagascar. And um, so, yeah. So, like, I, I blew off the next semester of school. Uh, I told my parents I was going to take, like, one more semester off, but I think we all knew I wasn't going back. And she totally took this, like, chance on this – I was 18, maybe 19 at the time. This 18- or 19-year-old kid, like, the tallest I'd ever climbed was to bolt or not to be, you know? So that's, like, what, 120 feet? I'd never placed a cam in my life. I'd never been to a third-world country. I'd never been out of the country without my parents. And, yeah, it was, like, the most – Eye opening, mind blowing experience I'd ever been on. And like, I cried a ton. I was like totally out of my element. You know, they taught me how to Jumar on the trip. Like, I didn't actually even understand. I was like, okay, so once we get to the top of the first pitch, like, how do you keep going? Like, I just, I had no idea. You know, it's like we're there making this NBC film and, you know, like pioneering this new 513 route up this climb. I was like, I was the total Gumby. They, They were really kind and like taught me everything. It was pretty rad because now in retrospect, I realize like it was this all-female team. It was Lynn, Nancy Fagan, Kath Pike, and then me. And this was like in the late 90s, pioneering new big wall roots in Madagascar. We were the second team, I think, into the Saranara Massif. So it was just like this brand new thing. The team, although I think it's like Lynn mainly, uh, I think... Nancy freed a lot of it too, put up this new route called Bravo Le Fee and I don't know if Lynn actually freed it. It was like five thirteen or maybe she couldn't do like one move of it. Like not tons of cracks, so there was like a lot of work that went into it, you know, like bolting stuff and like hard face climbing. Hard crack climbing too, but it wasn't like some weakness up the cliff. So yeah, that and that was it, right? That was like what I came home and I like never told my parents I was ever gonna go back to school. I packed up my Honda Civic, like this two door Honda Civic, and I drove straight to the valley after that. And so that was like, that was, that was the thing is this, it was complete pivot in my life that I was just like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm, I make $250 a month from climbing, but I don't care. Like I can go and eat canned soup every night for dinner in, in the valley. And that's what I did. If you want to be successful, not just in the athletic pursuit of the part of climbing, right? If you want to be successful in like the business professional side, I feel like for the women, you, you got to walk kind of a line. I always felt the need to fit this mold, right? You needed to be the good girl. Like you needed to smile and say yes and be accommodating and if you weren't, then the climbing community, you know, is quite small, at least for sure when I was at the height of my career. And if not, it was known, right? It was known that you were pushy or you were demanding or or you had a big ego. I know back then that was a huge thing that was frowned upon, right? Like talking about your accomplishments. And I felt like it was very different when it would be Tommy's turn or, you know, we'd go out climbing with and it would be a, a photo shoot of the professional guys. You know, they could talk shit. They could um tell photographers no. They could, you know, do that sort of thing where I always felt it was much different on my shoulders. It was much more like, you know, oh we need you in this certain sports bra. You need your hair down. You need to, you know, pull your shirt up and and that type of thing. So I just feel like it was so ingrained in the culture that I, at the time, I did not resent it one bit, right? I just, I was like, this is what it is and it's fine. It's better than sitting in a cubicle and, you know, punching numbers all day for some person in an office. But as I got further and further away from it or maybe just a little bit more educated or something, I think that I realized how different it was if you were a female versus a male in the community. and it just felt like there was a set of, a set of ways to make it as a professional climber as a woman. And I feel like there was a set of ways that you could make it as a male. And obviously, there was some crossover with you had to be, you know, pushing the boundaries of the sport, you had to obviously not be a complete jerk. But in some regards, that's as far as it went, you know, I feel like Anytime I had a contract negotiation and I asked for more, there was pushback. And I can say that like 100% of the time. It was never like any in any of my best of years, like freed the nose, did meltdown, did the optimist, like anything, there was pushback, even if it was like asking for $100 more a month. And I would say it was pretty rare when Tommy ever had pushback for asking for a raise. So it's really interesting to see how that played out. And I don't know if that can is continuing to play out but I would be surprised if it's completely gone away.
1: After the interview, we reached out to people in the outdoor industry with knowledge of athlete salaries, both at that time and today. Our sample size is small and anecdotal, but the people we spoke to all acknowledged that large pay gaps in the early 2000s were prevalent. They noted that while things began to improve dramatically in the middle of the last decade, to the point where a female could be the top earner on an athlete roster, there's still work to be done. We'll be back next week with a feature-length episode.
0: This is Climbing Gold.